Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, today we're going to be talking about, well, cheese. Mm. Now, what happened was a few months ago we mentioned cheese in an episode and someone said, why don't you do a whole show on cheese? We didn't think it was possible, but <laughs> we're going to give it a go. What we have for you today is a historical cheese platter, for want of a better phrase. So, Paul, why don't you kick us off with some background? Well, that's it. And we've actually got a cheese platter in front of us to keep us company. Oh, yeah. So here we go. So the word cheese, Mikey, of comes from the Latin Cassius, yeah. And the earliest sources we have sort of link it with that proto-European uh, root word, quat, which means to sort of ferment and become sour. And that's what's given rise to the quies or queza in the Old English. But interestingly, back with the Latin, yeah, when the Romans began to make hard cheeses for their legionaries' supplies, a new word started to be used to name their cheese, and this was formaticum from the Cassius formatus, or moulded cheese. And this formaticum formatus, that's where we get the French fromage yeah, and the Italian formaggi. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'll be getting to them later. Now, quite surprisingly, Mike, even though we think of cheese as being universal, it's actually almost unheard of in the East Asian cultures and the pre-Columbian Americas, and it only ever really ever had limited use in sub-Saharan Africa. So I suppose the first question we've really got to answer is where did cheese actually kick off? And you know, many regions, many countries claim to be the inventors of cheese. It's very, very hard to prove mm. either way, but it does seem that the earliest proposed dates for the origin of cheese making they range around the 8000 BCE mark when sheep are first domesticated because it's sheep's milk not cow's milk that makes the first cheese now the ancient Greeks in their mythology they actually credited Aristius with the discovery of cheese but the truth is Paulie like a lot of culinary leaps forward it was probably just an accident yeah, well, that's it, Mikey. Most food historians think that the truth is probably something around storing milk in a container, usually probably made from the stomach of an animal, and that results in the milk being turned to curd and whey by the rennet, which is naturally present in most animals' stomachs. But if we're going to get technical, Mikey, you know, in terms of archaeology, it turns out the earliest concrete evidence can be found in Poland, in Kujawia, and this dates from around 5,500 BCE, and it comes in the form of these strainers, which they think were used for making cheese because they're coated with milk fat molecules. But like I say, Mikey, you know, Europe can't have it all its own way because the Middle East also has its claims. And of course, with the ancient Sumerians and the ancient Egyptians, these claims are hard to dismiss, particularly in Egypt. Because dating from around 2000 BCE, we've got these amazing Egyptian tomb murals depicting cheese being eaten at banquets. And then we've got the world's oldest piece of cheese, which sort of dates from approximately 1200 BCE, that's actually being found in an ancient Egyptian tomb. Well, that's well and truly aged. But either way, Mikey, Europe or the Middle East, those early cheeses, they're probably very different to most of the cheeses you find on the supermarket shelf 
today because wherever they were made, they were going to be more sour and salty, more of a sort of feta, crumbly, or maybe even a cottage cheese. Although it does seem that there were some early changes afoot in Europe because, of course, you know, Europe with its cooler climate, cooler than the Middle East, the cheese-making process there would require less salt for preservation. And if you make cheese with less salt, that gives it less acidity. And it then means that the cheese can become a sort of suitable environment for all those other useful microbes which give aged cheeses their respective flavours. They certainly do. So apologies to our listeners in the Eastern Mediterranean, but I'm going to stick with Europe and its development of cheese there. And it's also in Europe that we get our first literary references to cheese. It actually comes in Homer's Odyssey. And we read about it as Homer's describing the Cyclops making and storing sheep's and goat's milk cheese. And as it's the first literary reference, I thought we should give the listeners the full quote. So here you go. (laughs) Homer writes... We soon reached his cave, as I said, we're talking about the Cyclops, but he was out shepherding, so we went inside and took stock of all that we could see. His cheese racks were loaded with cheeses, and he had more lambs and kids than his pens could hold. And then a little bit later, when the Cyclops has returned, Homer carries on. When he had so done, he sat down and milked his ewes and goats, all in due course, and then let each of them have her own young. He curdled half the milk and set it aside in wicker strainers. That's what I like about that story, Paulie, because even today, like some of your more expensive cheeses, they've been strained through wicker. Right, well, that's the ancient Greeks, and of course the Romans weren't far behind, because according to Pliny the Elder, cheese and cheese-making had become a sophisticated enterprise by the time of the Roman Empire. You see, in his Natural History, which he wrote about 77 CE, Pliny devotes an entire chapter to describing the diversity of cheeses enjoyed by Romans of the early empire. He states that the best cheeses come from villages near Nîmes, which is in Gaul, but then adds the caveat that these did not actually keep very long and had to be eaten fresh. He also talks about cheeses of the Alps and the Apennines and says how they were remarkable for their variety, which you know is as true today as it was then. And then he talks about some cheeses being produced that weighed as much as a thousand pounds each. I'm glad you mentioned Pliny and I'm glad you mentioned Homer because they've got something to do with a a story I'm about to tell about Roman cheesecake. Cheesecake? Yeah, Roman cheesecake and also early xenophobia. (laughs) Now, the the Romans loved their cheese and they loved cheesecake. Now, we know this from the writings of Cato the Elder. Mm. Now, he lived between 234 BCE and 149 BCE. He wrote De Agricultura sometime around about 160 BCE. And look, it's been described as a farmer's notebook. It's quite random and rambling in nature. It describes a few practices of animal husbandry. In fact, quite a few too many for my taste. Some (laughs) agricultural practices and a few recipes including recipes for Sevillum, Libum, and the charmingly named Placenta, Mm. all forerunners of the modern cheesecake. Actually, the first two, they're savoury. Right. But Placenta was acknowledged as being based on the famous Greek dessert, Mustachi, a layered cheesecake with grape must, pastry, and honey. Now, a variation of this Grecian treat can be traced back to a snack served to the athletes at the very first Olympic Games in mm. 776 BCE. It's a mixture of cheese, something like a modern-day picarina, like you were saying before, like a salty, harder sort of cheese, mm. flour, bay leaves and honey. And it was for centuries a staple of the Greek diet. Which is why I'm so puzzled that cranky old Cato even gives it a mention. (laughs) You see, during the 2nd century BCE, Rome had expanded and its forays into Greece had resulted in a fair bit of cross-cultural exchange. Mm. Something which Cato, as a noted orator, writer, commander and politician, couldn't stand. Ah. 
he saw the Hellenization of Rome's elite as dreadful, to say the least. <laughs> Firstly, he couldn't stand the fact that many of the Roman military leaders had grown wealthy from campaigning in Greece. Mm. But also, too, he saw Greek culture and literature, which he had read, by the way, mm. as being decadent and counter to the thrifty and modest virtues of the Roman Republic. Yeah. And don't get him started on the doctors. See, here's the thing, mate. For Romans like Cato, okay, Hippocrates was bad. Homer was dreadful. But that, that sweet cheesecake, which they knew was a long-standing Greek culinary tradition, well, mate, that was just too sweet and tasty a treat to leave off the menu. All right, folks, so we're tucking quite nicely into our cheese platter. I'm onto a nice little nibble of Saint-Auger, which sets us up quite nicely, because I think, Mikey, you want to talk about Charlemagne. Yes, mate. Look, we've got this story thanks to the 9th century monk known as Notka the Stammerer. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. Charlemagne dies in 814, but Notka's writing in the 880s. He was relying heavily on the 820s work by Einhard, The Life of Charlemagne, mm. when Notka writes his book, The Deeds of Charlemagne. But he doesn't just rely on Einhard. He also has some of these stranger recollections of another priest known as Weinbert. And this is where we get the cheese story from. Mm. Apparently, according to Notka, Charlemagne was travelling his kingdom when he came across a church with a local bishop in residence. It should be noted that Notka is well, he's an enthusiastic chronicler of the great man, particularly his devotion to the church, but he's not so crash-hot on names and locations and also dates. He's sort of like my sort of historian. <laughs> now, the bishop immediately offers the king of the Franks his hospitality, but there's a catch. It's a Friday, and as a devout Christian, Charlemagne would not eat any meat on a Friday. Mm. Still going when I was a young Catholic, fish and chips every Friday night. But fish was fine for Charlemagne, but there was no fish to be had. All the bishop had was some cheese. And apparently the bishop was deeply embarrassed by his humble offering of a simple wheel of cheese. Mm. A rather rough-looking, dry-edged piece of cheese. Now, Charlemagne accepted the meal and quietly set about cutting off the edges to get at the good gooey stuff inside. Mm. The bishop looked on and respectfully informed the king that he was missing out on the best bit, the tasty but unpleasant-looking rind. Mm. It took a bit of convincing, but Charlemagne cut off a bit of the rind and apparently chewed it quite slowly, they say, and swallowed it and declared that the dry ends were in fact delicious. In fact, he was so taken with it poorly that he declared that two full carts of this cheese should be delivered to his then capital at Aachen on an annual basis. Mm. Now, this is all according to Charlemagne. He wrote this down. The cheese worlds were to be split in two, with the good stuff, the stinky rind, being carted off to the king, Mm. and the inferior stuff to be left behind to feed the bishop and his friends. (laughs) Now, this goes on for about three years, with the bishop not only taking on the burden of sourcing enough cheese for the king, but also, on two occasions, personally driving the carts to Arkham himself. <laughs> it seemed that maybe the king's taste in cheese may have changed, but either way, we do know that after three years, the delivery stopped, but the bishop was granted large tracts of fertile land suitable for grain and grape growing. Mm. Look, there are some doubters to the story, but it does get more than one mention by the chronicles of the time. And we do know for a fact that Charlemagne was very fond of cheese, particularly Roquefort which its makers claim that story is about. But then again, so do the guys who make brie. But here's one thing we do know. Charlemagne brings back the old Roman tradition of ending the meal with a cheese course rather than just serving up with everything else. Mm. 
But as far as I'm concerned, this story also highlights that after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, just as like the chronicling and the history becomes the job of the monasteries, mm. so too do those artisanal pursuits that would have been part of the large Roman estates, like making wine, like making cheese, they also become part of what a monastery does. Yes. And that's a tradition that keeps going right into the 20th century. You mentioned Senegur cheese. Okay, monks don't make it anymore, but they still market it that way. Okay, but it's not just the soft stuff, is it, Mike? We've got to talk about hard cheese as well. Mate, we're going to talk about my favourite cheese in the world. I reckon it's the king of cheeses. We're talking about parmesan. Mm. Now, here's the thing. If you look at TV today, like the food shows, they're often accused of being food porn. If you want real food porn, you've got to go back to 1353, The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio. Mm. Now, he writes this incredibly sensual Italian fantasy about parmesan. (laughs) This is the poem. There is a mountain made entirely of parmesan. Standing at the top of it are people who do nothing else but make macaroni and ravioli. Cook them in a capon broth, then throw them down the slopes. The more you take, the more you get. Here's the thing. He writes this poem only 50 years after parmesan cheese has spread out of the area of Parma. It's Mm. already overtaken the Italian mindset as the best cheese of all. Mm. In fact, we only have to go back 70 years earlier for the first recorded mention of parmesan cheese. It's from 1254, when a transaction was documented to show that a wealthy noblewoman from Genoa had entered into a deal where she would trade her house for a delivery of 120 kilos of the cheese produced in Parma which goes to show how valuable the cheese was in that day. Or maybe she just really liked Parmesan. (laughs) And she wasn't the only person that loved Parmesan. I mean, the great 17th century playwright Moliere. Moliere maintained that he did his best writing on a diet of Parmesan cheese and three glasses of port. And that's per meal, so that's nine glasses of port and a lot of cheese a day. (laughs) And let's not forget Samuel Pepys. During the Great Fire of London in 1666, he runs out of his house and digs up a hole to save his valuables, which is, you know, some jewellery, some wine, and a whole wheel of Parmesan cheese. <laughs> Look, mate, to this day, chunks of Parmesan cheese are still the most frequently shoplifted items in Italian supermarkets. All right, so I'm churning through the cheese platter. Mikey's churning through the centuries, and you've got us now to the 18th century, Mikey? Yes, I have, mate. A story about Thomas Jefferson... Slavery and mac and cheese. <laughs> okay. Okay. In 1784, Thomas Jefferson, well, he was appointed as Minister Plenipotentiary to the Court of Versailles. Mm. And amongst his travelling party was a 19-year-old slave called James Hemmings. Right. It was Jefferson's intention that James be trained in the fine art of French cuisine. And in fact, to this end, Jefferson even paid the young man a wage. And for three years, James was apprenticed to some of the finest chefs in Paris eventually earning the role of chef de cuisine in Jefferson's kitchen on the beautiful Champs-Élysées. Now, this is where Jefferson wined and dined, the great and the good of Europe. And one of his guests' favourite dish was a macaroni pie, or as we would call it, mac and cheese. Ah. James was the first American chef to make this dish, although the credit is often incorrectly given to Jefferson's cousin, a woman called Mary Randolph, because she includes it in her housekeeping book, The Virginian Housewife. Mm. But she probably got the recipe from Hennings. Mm. So Jefferson's still in Paris, but in 1789, it looks as if the French will finally outlaw slavery. Yes, that's right, Mikey. That's the year when the French abolished slavery in their colonies. But actually, slavery in France was abolished way back 
1315, when Louis X of France proclaimed that France signifies freedom and that any slave setting foot on French soil should immediately be released. Well, this new law coming in in 1789, Jefferson is starting to get worried because not only is James with him now, but James's sister, the famous Sally Hemings, ah. has come and joined them in Paris. In fact, Sally Hemings' son, Madison Hemings, would later write that both of them considered staying in Paris and obtaining their freedom. Mm. Anyway, they both eventually returned to America with Jefferson, and James was paid to work as Jefferson's chef. And the reason for that is when Jefferson first goes back to America, he goes to Pennsylvania. Mm. Now, slavery is illegal in Pennsylvania. But after a few years there, Jefferson announced he wants to go back to Monticello which is a slave state. Yes. And James, unsurprisingly, isn't keen on the idea of going back to a slave state. James makes a contract with Jefferson. He will go back to Virginia and he will train up someone else to be Jefferson's chef, at which point Jefferson will actually free him. So Jefferson writes up this contract, and I've got to say it's a rather begrudging contract. These are Jefferson's words. Having been at great expense in having James Hemings taught the art of cookery, desiring to befriend him and to require him as little in return as possible, I hereby do promise and declare that if said James should go with me to Monticello in the course of the ensuing winter, when I go to reside there myself, and shall there continue until he shall have taught such a person as I shall place under him for that purpose to be a good cook, this previous condition being performed, he shall thereupon be made free." For one of the great minds of the Enlightenment, that is not a particularly enlightened document. Anyway, James does train his younger brother, Peter, and James was made a free man in 1796. Now, Jefferson goes on to become president, and one of the most famous dishes that he served at the White House was mac and cheese. Right. But it wasn't cooked by James. In fact, Jefferson tried twice in 1801 to have James come back into his employ at the White House as head chef. James says no. And in fact, it gets quite tragic here. It's said by this stage of his life he was drinking rather heavily and it's speculated by quite a few culinary historians that he was trying to hide his sexuality and he commits suicide in 1801. Welcome back, folks. I have to say we are on to our second packet of Cracker Biscuits now because, of course, we are talking about cheese in this episode. The history of cheese and, of course, it's great variety. In fact, Mikey, I found this old French proverb which holds that there's a different French cheese for every day of the year, which is something that Charles de Gaulle, no less, once commented on because he actually said, how can you govern a country in which there are 246 kinds of cheese? Well, actually, now that you've mentioned de Gaulle, I want to talk World War II. And this is going to be a very strange starting place here. I want to talk about the French anthropologist and ethnologist, a guy called Claude Levi Strauss. Now, he's considered to be the, the mentor of structuralist anthropology. Bear with me, Paul, I'm getting to cheese, all right? <laughs> now, Strauss would say he was looking for the search for underlying patterns of thought in all forms of human activity, and this included the dinner table. Mm. In fact, in 1964, he writes a book called The Roar and the Cooked, where he tells this story. Now, according to Strauss, in the immediate period after the Normandy landings in mm. World War II, mm. American troops are trying to break out of the beachhead. As they do, they found themselves fighting and advancing across the Normandy countryside. As they push forward, they would stop occasionally to destroy a French farm, or to be more specific, Paul, a French dairy. See, the reason the Americans gave for blowing up these dairies was that the smell of rotting corpses in the farmhouses was a threat to their health. Mm. It took a while for the locals to convince the Americans 
that what they were smelling was not in fact rotting flesh, but rows and rows and rows of Normandy's most famous product, the wonderful cheese we know as camembert. <laughs> now, it seems remarkable to us now, but you have to remember that in 1944, hardly any American had smelt anything stronger than a mild cheddar. <laughs> a farmhouse reeking of ripening camembert you know, in the middle of summer with no refrigeration mm. would have been quite confronting. And as such, wheels and wheels of the good stuff got blown to smithereens. <laughs> Okay, folks, I'm sadly hacking off my last chunk of salty Cheshire cheese, still my favourite after all these years, and I can't let the episode end without a little bit of flag-waving for us Brits, because, you see, compared to France, Mikey, and their number of different fromage, the British Cheese Board claims that its number of locally produced different varieties is some 700, stretching from Land's End to John O'Groats. And in terms of historical pedigree, the great English cheddar of Cheddar Gorge can point to references dating back as early as 1500, Henry VII, whereas your Normandy camemberts don't come into 1791. Okay, Paulie, I'll see your British cheese pride <laughs> and I'll raise you some Canadian cheese pride, which I know that sounds weird, yeah. but bear with me. The year is 1866 and the good folks of Ingersoll, Ontario, well, they created a single round of cheese that measured over six metres across mm. and weighed in at more than 3,000 kilos. Wow. Also, too, mate, here's the weird thing. Living amongst their midst was the perfect person to record this cheese, a Scottish-born poet called James McIntyre. Now, James had pursued many occupations in his life, but once he settled in Ontario, he took up the pen and he produced a few volumes of poetry that sold pretty well. To this day, he's known by two titles, The Worst Poet of All Time, which is pretty harsh but also pretty fair, and The Chaucer of Cheese. Ah. I think he would have liked the second one. And it, ma it makes sense because he actually was obsessed with cheese and cheese making. <laughs> Amongst his better-known poems were Dairy Ode, Father Rennie the Cheese Pioneer, Oxford Cheese Ode, Hints to Cheese Makers, and the classic Cheese Curd for Bait, which actually managed to combine his two great passions, cheese and fishing. <laughs> But it was his two poems about the subject of the giant cheese that I really want to talk about today. We should not forget that this giant massive cheese, not only did it make Ingersoll, Ontario proud, but it was also rolled out to exhibitions in Toronto, New York, also to the World's Fair in Paris, mm. and it, it even did a tour of Great Britain. People turned out to see this massive cheese. Now, the first work he wrote was titled Prophecy of a Ten-Ton Cheese. Never quite made ten tons, but, you know, he was hoping. And it seems to have been written during the process of making this mighty cheese. It contains these immortal words. Who hath prophetic vision sees in future times a ten-ton cheese? Several companies should join to furnish curd for great combine. More honour far than making gun, a mighty size and many a ton. Now, the strange thing about that, man, is he mentions it's better than making guns. Apart from being a keen angler and a cheese nut, he was also one of the earliest proponents of gun control <laughs> back in the 1860s. Okay, mate, I can see we're getting near to the end of our cheese platter, so I, I'm going to finish off with his final poem, Ode on the Mammoth Cheese. We have seen thee, Queen of Cheese, laying gently at your ease, gently fanned by evening breeze, thy fair form no flies dare seize. All gaily dressed, soon you'll go to the great provincial show to be admired by many a beau in the city of Toronto. <laughs> I told you it was a bad part. It gets worse. 
Cows numerous as a swarm of bees, or as the leaves upon the trees, he did require to make thee please, and stand unrivaled, queen of cheese. It gets worse. May you not receive a scar as, you have heard that Mr. Harris intends to send you off as far as the Great World Show at Paris. <laughs> of the youth, beware of these, for some might want to rudely squeeze or bite your cheek, then songs or glees we could not sing, O Queen of Cheese. Wert thou suspended from balloon, you'd cast a shadow even at noon. Folks would think it was the moon, about to fall and crush them soon. Yeah, that's the bomb. Look, I'm pleased to say that the memory of James McIntyre is still being honoured in Ingersoll up to this very day. Every year they still have a poetry competition. And, well, you've got to write a poem about cheese. And the first prize is cheese. Well, there you go, folks. That's the end of the show. And obviously anyone connected to fromage is going to be a hero in our book. Yeah, blessed in the cheesemakers and all that. But, of course, as Mikey's proven, there's also the odd howler. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 